Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to its member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AABMC. Now, about two years ago, uh, at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, I did a series on a number of issues related uh, to the pandemic, certainly issues related to um, anti-Asian American sentiments, um, access, uh, kind of what was going on with the colleges, all of these different kinds of issues. And today I'd like to revisit a bit of that, specifically talking about access to veterinary medical care during the pandemic, kind of what does that look like? Um, and kind of maybe talking about what the future of access looks like um, now that we are kind of emerging to a time when we're just going to start living with this thing and maybe all of us get to go outside again. Maybe. <laughs> so I am delighted to welcome my wonderful, wonderful friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Blackwell, to the show to talk about access to care. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Dr. Greenhill. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you again, and uh, hopefully uh, your audience will appreciate the time spent. Great. Wonderful. So we always have newbies uh, listening and watching the podcast. So uh, Dr. Blackwell, Michael, tell us about yourself a bit. Well, I'm a, a veterinarian. I was honored to be born uh, the second child of a veterinarian, the first practitioner in Southeast Oklahoma. And I've had a just a wonderful, blessed career um, from being in private practice to uh, 23 years with the United States Public Health Service. I ended that tour um, as chief of staff of the Office of the Surgeon General and went on to become dean of the veterinary college at the University of Tennessee. It was during that time that I really became more sensitized to societal trends translating into not having access to veterinary care. And so that's my, my work today as director of the program for pet health equity. We are a one health program, so we live in the College of Social Work instead of the College of Veterinary Medicine. Well, that's interesting that it's not in vet med, but in social work. Can you just talk a little bit about why it was uh, set up there? Yes. Well, I, I'm a big believer in the One Health approach to addressing societal and global issues. So focusing on humans mm -hmm. as well as animals and the ecosystem or environment, because these all, all three of these touch, intersect, and uh, to failing to factor in any one of these three means that you will not take the best approach to solving problems. And this is particularly true for a system of healthcare, which is what we have been uh, working on for more than four years. So I believe in One Health. And here's the real, real important reason. I have yet to meet a pet that I could point to and say, you're the reason for the barrier to, uh, to veterinary care. No, it, it, these barriers are human-centric uh, factors. And so if we're serious about improving access to veterinary care, we have to look above that table Mm. and to the eyes of our clients, because um, it's because of those families that come to us that we're able to provide the services that we want to provide. And so I'm really working hard to sensitize veterinarians to the need to become, uh, to have a different mindset. And that is that we're in the business of family medicine, family health. 
Mm-hmm. We do so by focusing on non-human family members, just as pediatricians will focus on the minors in the family. So if we shift that, that paradigm, <clears throat> uh, we will start to think differently, message differently, and be more creative about how we reach our society. Great. All right. Thank you. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, you have been on the podcast a couple of times prior. And uh, the first time that you were on the show, we talked about access, adequate, ensuring adequate access to veterinary care. So in the context of the pandemic, have we seen changes in this space? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Quite a number. And many of the changes are... also found in other industries. For example, early on, a lot of job losses and um, more people were um, unemployed uh, temporarily in most cases. And and therefore, if a problem happened at that time, a medical need arose, they were in the same situation as those who perennially have struggled to pay for veterinary care. So when we say access to veterinary care, let's be clear. Yes, there are certain um, members of our society who are more affected, Mm -hmm. but even the middle class families, some middle class families are affected. So what the pandemic did for me is it helped me to be attentive to some systems level things that were problematic. And there's been a lot of dialogue about how the pandemic exposed the delicate underbelly (laughs) of the nation. Um, And just on the employment front, let me point this out. Um, The rate now, the unemployment rate is reported to be, using a round number, around 4% is what I last heard. Um, let's understand that that number reflects the percentage of people still looking for a job. Right. And so what came out of that pandemic was that many people gave up looking for a job and, um, and they're not accounted for in that number. So the problem is bigger than 4%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The silver lining is, though, and all of what we learned is, not does not work well in this country is we we had the opportunity to become creative in how we deliver services. Um, I often think of the corporations that used to spend lots of money flying teams oh, yeah. across the country for for meetings, and uh, Zoom taught us, you know, you can pretty much accomplish the same thing by way of Zoom. And now even veterinary conferences um, allow virtual participation, even presentations. Uh, so they're both uh, negative things that we learn, but a lot of positive things. And those lessons should be really embraced because they point us to ways that we can do business in the future. Right, right. So did access go down for a bunch of people or did access go up or it probably went up for some folks and down for others? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, combination. Right. So um, it was reported that veterinary practices actually saw an increase in income, but it was serving fewer clients. Some surmised that, well, people are now at home and now they are observant of the non-human family member, or it's a chance to catch up on wellness care and some other things, and uh, just spending more money, actually, than they would have. But let's not uh, let those numbers fool us. That is, the income either stayed the same or increased, because, yes, there are fewer people being served. And, of course, the emergency practices have been slammed and still are because they are having to see people who would have uh, gone to a general practice practitioner. Oh, by the way, that was one of the key reasons for the Affordable Care Act, because low-income people were using 
the emergency ER. room is their point of care. And that's the most expensive door you can walk through. And now we have all of these bonded families, human and, and non-human members yeah. Yeah. that are going to emergency practices for care and it's driving them even even further into that financial well wow yeah i'm one of those people uh Mm -hmm. a lot of folks know barkley barkley my my little terrier mix uh yeah we got the dental work done (laughs) like we've had some other things done we even had a trip to the er that probably could have waited until the next morning (laughs) but i'm home with nothing else to do but fret right so i i actually um can certainly see that and i also recognize that yeah a lot of folks i mean you know public transit kind of you know uh uh uh, shrunk, like that. It was all of these things still existed, but they just were operating very, very differently, right? And yeah. so, I imagine that um, you know ways of just getting to clinics were different. Um, you couldn't actually go inside the clinic either um, at most practices. So, all of these things, I'm sure, really changed the experience that those of us who did. <laughs> frequent <laughs> the veterinarian, um, but also made it just that much harder for folks who already yeah. were facing barriers. Yeah. And my understanding is there's still quite a few practices that are operating on um, safe distancing policies where the the client still needs to stay in the park parking lot and you go out and retrieve the pet. And, you know, this adds to the amount of time it takes to serve. These 15-minute appointment windows are <laughs> they're gone uh, for some practices yeah. because of, of those policies. Yeah, yeah. So are there any, I mean, I guess some of the, the constraints around access probably are the, 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 the usual groups and locations, but, um, you know, kind of what are those patterns really kind of looking like? Are there, you know, um, uh, states or cities that just really seem to have really particularly struggled um, and been kind of, mar- you know, have communities that are really marginalized, um, been marginalized during these last couple of years? Mm-hmm. Yes, there is definitely... Um, diversity yeah. <laughs> uh, among uh, those who are affected. In fact, when we conducted a national study um, in 2018, we, we measured different access uh, challenges across the country. So, for example, I live in the southeastern United States, and the problem is more severe here than, let's say, the West Coast um, or Western United States. Um, But true to form, meaning what we know historically is that people of color, BIPOC communities are disproportionately affected. And that not only stayed the same, but in some instances it increased because everybody was having struggles to get in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And going to an ER for that help that you can't get as a general practice, you know, as soon as you walk through the door, you're faced with a bigger bill than you would have had to. So um, may I just dwell on this just a little bit? It's important for the veterinary profession to recognize who we mean by the society that we took an oath to serve. The trends are real clear. The nation is becoming more diverse, more of a multiple nation. Uh, Some are uncomfortable discussing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and belonging. But I'm here to say, given the trends, increasingly your client will be a person of color. Yeah. So um, the latest census uh, reported the racial ethnic diversity ratio. Basically what that is, is a measure of if you 
were to randomly mm-hmm. go into any community, uh, any city, whatever, and randomly chose two people off the street, uh, there's a 61% chance that they are from different racial or ethnic groups. Now, that's the U.S. average. Yeah. Maine, is, there's only an 18% change, chance. Yeah. But um, in some sections of the country, the, the, um, the rate is way up there in yeah. the higher 60s. So what we're seeing then is we're a diverse nation already. And it is important to get comfortable with that fact. And if we are also a nation with a growing working class or Alice asset limited income constrained but employed group mm-hmm. of people, then our pricing of services will definitely have to be addressed because otherwise we will be continuing to serve a smaller and smaller and smaller uh, sector of society. Wow. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you're right. The, you know, the, 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 the demographics are rapidly changing every year. The Census Bureau projections for when we will become a majority minority, you know, country, uh, you know, just keeps the date keeps getting closer and closer and closer. And it's not just because the days that we're living day to day, but I mean, you know, in the last, Five years, we've seen some of those projections um, shrink by, you know, a decade or so. Um, we're we're getting a lot closer, and uh, with that come a lot of issues around um, access to housing, access to infrastructure, access to healthcare. Um, you know, uh, uh, veterinary care is just one example of the dilemmas I think that that we're facing as as a nation. Um, so, yeah, go ahead, please. I was just going to finish up here by saying what we are really talking about is a social justice issue. That is our issue as a profession. Now, before anyone gets upset, we didn't create this issue. Okay, it has fallen into our laps. And why is it us? Why can't it be someone else? Well, we're the only ones who provide veterinary care, which is a needed service in our community. So we we have to be attentive to our society and recognize it's changing. And if we think we're behind where society is, which I think we are, Mm -hmm. then we need to be busy figuring out how to catch up with where society is today. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about telemedicine? I know this is like a third mm-hmm. rail <laughs> for some folks in, in the profession, but I know it can be, yeah, I know it can be a bit controversial for folks. Um, can you explain maybe a little bit about why it's controversial? Like kind of what, what's, what's the deal um, with telemedicine? Um, and, uh, you know, because it, I certainly have spent some time and you have as well um, with the, the Surgeon General and kind of looking at human health. This is, you know, immediately kind of what we pivoted to um, in large scale during the pandemic. So is that on the horizon for VetMed? It's, un- it's unavoidable. And re- remember, I just said we need yeah. to catch up with where society is. Well, right now, as we speak, Millions of of Americans are participating in telehealth services with their care providers. That expectation will visit us. You know, I remember the days when we were not treating so much cancer and heart disease and renal failure. And it was the public says, wait, I want my pet to get the same care I get. And the profession responded in fine fashion. So we need to do likewise here now. I am a huge believer in the importance of the veterinary client-patient relationship. Unfortunately, some immediately jump to, well, you're talking about not having a relationship when you talk about telehealth. No, we can do both. We can chew in and, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. Some, Some services do not, cannot be adequately provided using a virtual approach. But there are some that can. Now, I usually go for an easy example, 
And mm-hmm. it's one where we historically, at least I, this is my recollection, I think this is still true. Many practices will ask the client to come back in a week or 10 days for uh, an inspection of the incision site after even a spay. And it's good medicine, you know, maybe an infection going on, something else may be happening. Great medical care. Um, The reality is that when we think of the Alice group of Americans or Mm -hmm. the working poor, most don't get paid leave. And uh, when they therefore have to take off to come in for that exam, uh, they've lost income. In some cases, they need to pay for some transportation. They've lost income. And oftentimes, this may be happening right when the rent is due or the children need some food and so forth. And it's just to go into the practice being provocative here for a five minute visit for someone to look at that that uh, incision site and say, "Yep, it looks fine. Get back in touch with us if it changes." Now, no one can convince me that requiring a client to be in the physical space of the veterinarian is necessary for something like that. And and as we start to talk about this, as I get to do with with, um, veterinarians who are forward thinking, we start to line up a number of situations where it wasn't mandatory that the client be in. Now, the, the rub is if there's a need that's shown up, the person can't get in and the veterinarian has not established the veterinary client-patient relationship. Well, in that case, um, it gets a little bit more tricky, but there's a, still a way to assist that individual at that time and, um, and still protect your, your, your license yeah. <laughs> because you cannot diagnose and prescribe without having examined the patient. But you can talk in general terms about what may be going on but requires exam and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. And, and if there were that, this is what uh, uh, many would do in that situation. This is done every day in human health care. And speaking of the VCPR, <laughs> while I was with FDA, we, we, we struggled with, well, how often does the veterinarian need to go to the farm mm. to see the livestock? You know what we settled upon once a year, once a year is, is at least. I mean, and the range was from monthly to every six months to a year, if you would. Now, um, if a veterinarian believes that they can't answer the client's concern because it's been only, it's been at least, it's been six months since you were in here. We may be stretching it a bit about <laughs> whether yeah. we can help. And there is a conflict of interest because of business income. I get that. Mm-hmm. But we, we do have to figure out how we can be paid for those services. And maybe we need to talk to the physicians about how they're getting paid. And I know they have third-party paying yeah. systems. And that's one of our problems. We don't work with third-party payers. Mm-hmm. Our system, Align Care, is based on a third-party payer system because healthcare is too expensive to be a cash basis industry, which is what we are, because only about 3% of transactions involve insurance. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I again, like, so I've, I've taken Barclay to, to the veterinarian over the last two years, but mm, I think I've only seen my primary care doctor twice all of our appointments have been um have been uh virtual have been telemedicine and and those times that i needed to go in they were like hey we cannot do that that we cannot do over (laughs) over the phone or over video you know you got to come on in and we come on in but otherwise it's been a really you know it's frankly been a godsend that that and felt safe right to be able to do that so So what are some of the big lessons I think that we can learn after, you know, two years of practicing in the pandemic? 
Well, at the top of my list is we are still operating on 20th century ideas and systems. And the world has changed in the 21st century (laughs) and continues to change. (laughs) We need to do the hard work. We have to do the hard work to bring our systems up to date uh, and be in sync with the society that we serve. So, um, you know who's best at that? Who's who's best? Millennials. (laughs) And millennials, I I, I really like the generation because they were were shaped by these times. And one expression of that is would be the reluctance to just automatically embrace the system out of the 20th century, knowing that it's failing them, Mm. um, where the loyalties are placed and that this generation is more socially conscious than any previous generation. And of course, veterinary medicine is more than 50% millennials. So as I say to my colleagues, older in particular, listen to the millennial veterinarians and veterinary nurses and other members of that team who are millennials. I didn't say agree with everything that they come up with. You'd be surprised how creative those folks are because they are 21st century folks. I'm a a 20th century person given my age. So um, we learned that we can do things differently. Uh, It may mean changing systems. And um, there are plenty of lessons out there in other industries in particular where that they've navigated that challenge or are navigating that challenge. Yeah, yeah. So one, I just want to like point out that this is a very positive framing of millennials because millennials get dragged a lot (laughs) because they do, they are, they are different. And certainly Gen Z's right behind them. That's the group now that are, you know, in the first and second year cohorts of veterinary school, we're seeing now the Gen Z's emerge and um, y'all thought that the millennials were different. Like the, the Z's are coming, the Zennials are coming, and they are going to rock your world. Trust me on that. Um, but you know, I, I think that um, you're right. We're we're kind of um, being challenged to to really think about these things very differently. And you know, I do also agree that that um, millennials and again Zennials right behind them are much more social justice oriented in terms of, I mean, big picture. Right. Yeah. Not just kind of like this group and that group, but this big picture yes. systemic worldview kind of look at um, um, social justice and access. And one of the things I um, did want to touch on with respect to, to the, the telemedicine piece, and certainly there are, you know, um, ambulatory practices ambulat- um, and in-home practices and all of these types of things. But um, something that I know for me, I've been chatting a lot about over the course of the pandemic are, um, you know, what about um, uh, disability community, right? And, and they are pet owners, they also are the group that is really, you know, the, the users of service animals and assistance animals and all of those animals need help. Right. And so yeah. that group during this last pandemic, I follow, um, I mean, this last pandemic, <laughs> the, this pandemic, um, you know, I follow a lot of disability advocates and one, um, you know, they're at the beginning of the pandemic was, oh, okay. So now we all need these accommodations that many of us have been saying is just good practice and things that we need to be a full member of society. But now that everyone needs them, they're accessible, right? And so telemedicine really blew up, right? We we were already using it, but, you know, it really blew up, but we're already starting to see some of the rollbacks because, you know, the world is opening again and we're not really kind of keeping an eye on that long-term accessibility. So, society, you know, access, it's not just access to, to care, but access to society and the outside world, um, you know, and, and so that's a community I try to really take some cues from because they are really, you know, tip of the spear in terms of thinking about 
what are those hurdles and how can we remain really engaged? And so, you know, I know that these things are, can be challenging um, for the profession to kind of think about the, that evolution, but um, think about the impact as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and there's another third, uh, third rail. Okay. What's the other third rail? I mean, we're already commuting heresy here, so let's just go all the way. <laughs> Let me start this way. <laughs> you would be hard-pressed to find someone who's thought about this carefully who would say that one million physicians can serve 340 million people. <laughs> it's not enough of them, and you can't train up enough of them to catch up with to the place where only physicians are providing the medical care. Well, we have about 65,000 companion animal practitioners trying to serve more than 200 million pets. The math is terrible, (laughs) you know? And so while we have dragged our feet about licensing others to have the authority to diagnose and prescribe, that is part of the solution. And I, I mean, I can think back in, in the early days of my life when, uh, it, with the government, when physicians were going through the same transition. So now there are multiple allied professions in order to really deliver health care to humans in this country. I'm not saying we need all of that. What I'm saying is 65,000 veterinarians can't treat 200 million pets adequately. (laughs) And so that's another challenge that we have. We need our nurses to operate, those who get qualified through training, to operate like a physician assistant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not all of them, but certain ones of them, Um, like a a licensed practical nurse. Um, And then there's one other little third rail. Okay, let's go. Okay, Um, because I get this a lot when I talk about it. Today, tens of millions of U.S. citizens have gone into drugstores and purchased medications off the shelf, sometimes intended for vulnerable individuals like seniors or infants. And the infant part is interesting because one of the first pushbacks that veterinarians give about over-the-counter drugs is, well, the pet can't talk to you. They can't tell you what's up. I'm like, neither can that six-month-old. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and we don't think it's strange that there are certain medications that are appropriate for over-the-counter sales. Veterinary medicine has not promoted the availability of meds like that, which can be a cheaper option for families. Mm. Um, we, we need to be careful that we don't present ourselves as a monopoly that we want to maintain and sustain mm. while looking over that there at individuals that are not able to be served. What I fear is this, if we don't take the lead in opening that up, trust me, this country has citizens who will make that happen. And we may not like the way it goes, mm-hmm. but uh, consumers are not just going to roll over and say, Oh, well, we're just out of luck. The veterinarians can't help us. Oh, no, 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 no. They won't. Well, I think that, you know, the other piece of that is, is um, if some of those identifiable kind of, you know, low level kind of things that we can kind of manage at home, I mean, this is how some of us, guilty, have turned to Dr. Google <laughs> and given their their pet something maybe that we shouldn't have given, or, you know, we look at remedies and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, certainly there's always going to be a population that is trying to kind of self-medicate, self-treat, whatever it is. But a lot of times, if it is that thing that, you know, we could have just had an appointment, got the script or, and went on about our way, um, you know, through virtual, which would probably help, you know, facilitate that a bit um, or just told what what might, you know, resolve the issue. Um, you know, it, 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 
not having some of that makes it difficult to trust on the big things, right? And I think that a lot of um, a lot of not just veterinarians, but just you know um, health professionals in general don't understand truly understand the relationship with that client, whether it's the, the patient themselves or the client intermediary for the animal, and and that. You know, it is um, there are some trust issues there in terms of, OK, can I handle this myself or do I have to go back to the well every single time? Like for the, you know, OK, the incision is not oozy. It looks like it's doing OK. Right. Can I can we can we move on? Right. And so I think that those I don't think that that folks really um, or we we understand kind of the nature of that in human healthcare, like the the six month old can't <laughs> talk to you either, but you seem to know that something is really wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're capable of also doing that, especially now that we've all been home for two years and have <laughs> spent so much quality time with our animals. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you yeah. know, speaking of Dr. Google, um, we should factor in seriously that this is a primary way in which people are becoming informed about their non-human family member and what to do in this situation of that. And we all know there's junk information out there. Uh, if we wanted to, and we should want to, we could ensure there uh, there's one or more sites that's that are vetted, okay, where the information is valid and reliable. But the alternative, I mean, the opposite is happening. Veterinarian recently lost his license. This is a retired veterinarian that's still trying to help communities that uh, are low income. And he, he was able to interact with these families by way of the internet as an alternative to Dr. Google, um, knowing not to diagnose and prescribe but this general advice and the state board took his license. Now it's at this moment that I'm reminded of the dog on the haystack. Many of your listeners may not have heard about that dog. The dog on the haystack is the individual who can't eat the hay, but won't let the cows come over and eat the hay. (laughs) And so With that veterinarian, that's exactly the way I saw it. The people who took his license weren't putting an alternative solution on the table. They're saying, oh, no, those people are out of luck. They can't play. If they can't play in the pool that we built, um, the structures, the system, physical space and time, not a virtual world, (laughs) um, then they can't be served. And the public, they're not going to have that. They're not going to have it. No, no, they're not going to have that. So, so as we start to, well, I did also want to mention somebody in the chat. Dr. Worthy uh, is very happy. Uh, He says, uh, indeed, as he is sitting with a six month old right now, (laughs) I'm sure he is very happy about baby Tylenol. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The accessibility. (laughs) Of that and Pedialyte and all of the other wonderful things. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that being shared, uh, Dr. Worthy. Um, your timing is perfect. I mean, because this is normal for American society. Yeah. It's not thought to be bad medicine or it could be dangerous if you don't read the label and follow the label. But we, we're not the police. We can't <laughs> ensure every single individual is going to follow the label. This is why we have a warning on lemon-scented dishwashing. So, because <laughs> some people, I'm sorry, you know, I mean, it may be a language problem. So, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And so we, we, we have to cut through what are those serious concerns and yet still try to find some workable solutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the more I think about this, it just, it, it is uh, it is shocking to me that it's kind of a third rail because, I mean, what do we do with our kids? It is, oh my goodness, 
you know, baby has a fever. Okay, I'm going to call the pediatrician. The pediatrician is like, it's going to be okay. Calm down. Let's get some Tylenol. Call me back. If it gets worse, call me back. <laughs> so go get baby Tylenol, right? Yeah. And call me if it gets worse, right? Yeah. And so, um, so there is apparently maybe some space in there. So um, can't wait to hear the comments on this episode. <laughs> Well, one thing I need to say, there are families who want cutting edge, sometimes called gold standard medical care. They can afford it. We don't want to break that. Okay. No. We, we, we want to continue to provide that high level care that those families can afford. We can do that while we also serve a broader society of pet owners. And that, that means a priori. It's a different model. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. simply has to be a different model. One size does not fit all. Now, veterinarians historically have always tried to lower fees to meet the capabilities of the client to pay. We, we gave it a name called incremental veterinary care. You do what's okay. most critical on that day in that visit. Okay. And intent is to add on the other care as, as the person can pay for it. Um, so this is doable. We've been doing it. We just, well, I'll stop there because I'll may say something. We can make, we may, I'll take it from here. We can, there, there's room, there is room to extend. Yes. <laughs> We're problem solvers. We're problem yeah. solvers. I mean, if there's any group of people who can solve testy problems, it's veterinarians. Yes. I didn't yes. say physicians. I said veterinarians. Yeah. So uh, let's use that privilege that we have. It's a privilege to be a veterinarian. Yeah. And uh, power comes with privilege. Yeah. Let's exercise the power that we have yeah. in our knowledge, skills, capabilities, and influence. Yeah. Yes. 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 So now that we, the world is kind of opening up a bit, um, mask mandates are falling by the wayside daily and things are opening back up. Um, what opportunities uh, um, do you see ahead that can really result in increased access to care? Certainly we've talked about some things um, um, very specifically, but are there other thing, opportunities for um, increases in, in access? Yeah, uh, I don't want to sound self-promoting, but our work has has resulted in a systems approach to reaching those that have historically been underserved. And that word system is important because our industry is made up of sole proprietorships, independent entities, and a few now corporations. There, you can't look at a database that tells us about the distribution of diseases in any community. You can't find a database that helps to characterize the communities that uh, are underserved from a veterinary medicine standpoint. So our work is trying to fill that void. Um, the, the key word to take away, though, is system. We need a system of delivery of veterinary care. The independent sole proprietorship model, 20th century, ain't working well today. So this is how human healthcare got to manage healthcare, because um, a doctor may, in fact, enjoy the $100 a dose drug because that's what he or she has always used. But FDA now has approved a generic that costs $10, and the third-party payers are saying. We're not paying for the $100 drug. Now, unless, unless that generic is shown to not be, yeah. be working, it's the system of third-party payers that causes human health care to operate in its glory, and that's positively and negatively. Sure, sure. We learn from the things that don't work well in that system and build a system of veterinary care. So in other words, I can throw a dart at, a US, at the U.S. map, no matter where it lands, there's an insight into community needs around health care. There are survey instruments, mostly government, that are 
are applied periodically so mm-hmm. that this database continues to grow. You can throw that same dart at the same U.S. map a thousand times, a million times. It will never land on a community where we know anything about it like that. How can we plan for the future needs of our country, the society we took an oath to serve, when we don't even know the society? It's not our job solely to do that. There are others who do this work, but we need to encourage that that kind of work gets done. Uh, We don't have to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a way to pay for these things in this country. But if the chief, if the primary profession doesn't see a need, not calling for it, well, guess what? It's probably never going to happen. It's not going to happen. And lots and lots of folks and communities will be continue to be underserved. Yeah, because they're, I mean, essentially invisible in that scenario, right? They're yeah, invisible. They are. They're invisible. That's that's literally true because when we think of marginalized, underserved communities from a veterinary medicine standpoint, what what are their needs? Absolutely nobody can tell you. Now we're we're working on that to be able to do those assessments. How can we get into the 20th century and we still don't know about our communities that are underserved? And yet we're in the service delivery business, healthcare. It's a big gap. That's a big gap. And, and by the way, for those who live in a gated community, let's understand 65% of infectious disease, diseases in humans are zoonotic and they grow legs, you know, uh, because people in gated communities go to public spaces and are mingling with those people. Um, you're not safe. By having unchecked diseases in your community, not adequately preventing and controlling those diseases. So you must care, I think, about those other neighborhoods. Yeah. 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 That's your own well-being that you're looking out for, frankly, at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, for, for so many years working in the profession, I've always heard, well, you know, the worst infectious zoonotic infectious disease is only a plane right away okay so now we're you know stretching into year three of a pandemic (laughs) and it's you know we're all living in a really bad movie where yes it is just a plane ride away and it's actually not even a plane ride it's just down the hall like it's just (laughs) it is and and you know when we factor in uh, climate change, that one or two degree increase in average global temperature means newly emerging infectious diseases. They're out there. They're maybe in tropical forests or whatever. They don't just drop out of space. But uh, the, the vectors like ticks are growing in population and migrating into new areas, uh, further north, essentially. So there, there's a, a combination of factors that point to a really disturbing future if we don't get hold of ourselves and start to look at a systems level, societal level, and understand our critical role in keeping the society healthy. It's not just compassion. It's public health. Yeah, that's deep. That's heavy. So, and it seems like maybe a good place to put a pin in in this conversation. But before we do that, anything else that you want to share with your colleagues about ensuring access to care? What is, well, let me ask you this instead. Let me reframe it. What is the one thing veterinarians can do that can increase care, access to care? Add our voices, influence to the process that involves uh, various programs and even legislation. I um, I saw a report, I guess yesterday, a new bill introduced in, um, geez, I'm drawing a blank on the state. But there are government entities or individuals for certain who see this problem and they want to do something about it. But we need to care enough about it 
that they know that we're with them. We're behind them. We're, we're not paying for it. I'm not asking that we start giving away services. We have to stay in business in order to help our communities. So this means then opening up the doors so that we are communicating with people in the business of supporting people. We're, we're not trying to do that. But the partners are there. We, we built our system based on that. So the barriers are human factors. And there are many organizations and systems set up already to support humans. And I think we'll see more legislation uh, whereby uh, budgets are contain reallocated funds in some instances or new funding streams specifically for this cause. And again, it's not so much compassion. It may be public health that's driving that concern. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for uh, stopping by and and, um, talking about access to care during the pandemic and beyond. Um, Yeah. And all of our multi-third rail. (laughs) Yeah shenanigans. Um, But no, these are really, really important um, topics. And I think that um, I think that a lot of us are thinking about access, but maybe not always thinking about the different ways that we can increase access, right? It's not a one size fits all. It's going to be a number of different avenues. I think that we'll, you know, we'll have to really think about and adopt in order to make sure that um, society is served, that, you know, animal suffering is addressed um, and that, you know, we all stay healthy. (laughs) public health. Yeah. 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 So thank you. I appreciate you having me on and uh, thank you for uh, the wonderful conversation. I think those third world rail issues are the things we have to talk about. Yeah. Because we have to be intentional about improving matters. And that means looking at the scary stuff, you know, that's embedded in there. That means being honest about the fact that some things don't work on behalf of our society in, in, in a large way. Yeah. And uh, we can we can make a better future for our, our citizens and ourselves. All right. Thank you. So this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air. To my guest, Dr. Michael Blackwell, thank you for joining me for this really important conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast application and like and uh, like and share our content um, on our Facebook page, which is AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air. So we will see you next time. And the next episode will be airing in about a week uh, in February. We will be talking about um, trans identities and intersecting um, trans and intersecting BIPOC identities within veterinary medicines. A much long awaited show that I've been trying to put together for quite some time. So stay tuned. For-